And so Paul and his wife Joan grew up on the mission field in Africa, Paul in Nigeria, Joan in Malawi. You've heard of Malawi around here. And they both went to missionary boarding schools away from their families. And um, that would have been probably in, the, what, the later 50s, early 60s, right? And then they met in a little town called Bradley, West Virginia, at Appalachian Bible College, and married and have served the Lord uh, ever since. You did a stint in South Africa together as missionaries on the field, and uh, now he's been home for some time now, I don't know, 15 years, serving as general director of BMW. really appreciate Paul's friendship. I think you're going to enjoy his ministry tomorrow morning from the pulpit. And I asked Paul to come and just challenge our hearts and uh, challenge our thinking with missions here at Fellowship Bible Church. As Paul makes his way up, let's just bow for a word of prayer. Can we do that? Now, Father, quiet our hearts and uh, just thank you for an enjoyable evening of delicious food, wonderful fellowship with our church family, and uh, some fun with the game of Jeopardy. We do ask for you to bless and encourage and strengthen our missionaries around the world. And now, Lord, as we've gathered here, help us to focus and to receive from you the challenge that comes from your servant, Paul Sager. Thank you that uh, you've used him so effectively through the years. And we ask for your blessing on his ministry tonight and tomorrow morning as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I like that line, seven billion reasons to think about seven billion. I like the, uh, the title of your, your theme here for this conference, Who Cares? I've, I've been in probably, I don't know, maybe hundreds of conferences, never seen this uh, theme used before. But who cares? Who cares that there's seven billion people on the planet? Probably the majority of them are not followers of Jesus Christ. We know, or they sort of estimate that maybe at least half do not have a Christian neighbor. In other words, if they wanted to go down the street or even look in their community, in their city, to try to find a Christian that could show them how to come to Christ, at least half the world's population doesn't have that near them. Well, who cares? Well, a church like this does. But what I want to do is try to personalize this a little bit this evening because uh, it's kind of easy to hide in a group. And when you're part of this church, and obviously you're here tonight on a Saturday night of all times to have a missions emphasis, so I'm working from the assumption that you do care. And so what we want to do tonight is not to uh, make you feel bad because you don't care, but see if we can ratchet it up just a little bit and see if, if we can sort of move your caring to another level. And between now and next Sunday, this time with this missions emphasis, that, that uh, maybe you would go away from this, these two weekends here with, with maybe a higher intensity of caring. What I want to do is just take you to a couple of two different countries, actually. And, and it's, when we talk about seven billion, it's kind of hard to, well, what's seven billion? I don't even know what a billion is. I don't know what a million is. So let me see if we can try to personalize this a little bit. And I want to take you, first of all, to one of the countries that I love. It's a country in which we spent 17 years working in church planting in South Africa. I'd grown up in Nigeria in the bush with my parents where they did very primitive kinds of work. But uh, our missionary career was working with Europeans in South Africa and it was very Western, very modern, totally opposite. Subsequent to those days, our colleagues there have moved into a different category of ministry working in shanty towns, working in slums with people that are disadvantaged. And as apartheid was done away with, there's just been multitudes of people that have moved into the city 
and uh, have taken up residence there, but of course there's not the housing, the infrastructure, the jobs and everything to care for them, so there is a lot of poverty. There's uh, some humorous sights um, that you can come across. I don't know if that's bright enough for you to see, but we sort of make transport out of anything that we can in Africa. Next slide. Uh, one of the big problems in sub-Saharan Africa is, of course, AIDS. And this is a problem that is devastating that part of the world. As a result of that, there are NGOs and other groups of people that are working with AIDS patients. Next slide. And of course, when parents die, it leaves kids. Parents are dying just in South Africa, not Southern Africa, but just the country of South Africa. They're dying at the pace of, of which is causing 2,500 new orphans every single week. Parents are dying at that pace. And so what happens is these kids, you might have a 10 or 11-year-old that is the head of a household trying to take care of, their, uh, of his brothers and sisters. There just no, is no one to take care of them. The next slide. Uh, we enjoyed chicken tonight, but I didn't see any of this out there. We got to eat, you know, the white meat and the thigh. They uh, are lucky if they can get some chicken feet just to give a little bit of flavor to the meal, and, and, and we are moving into this arena of working with these orphans. In fact, we're just given 50 acres to develop a, a, a sort of a foster care facility through a local church that we're going to be working in, just trying to do a little bit to help. But it's just like a, a, a flood coming at us, this 2,500 new orphans every single week. Well, who cares? That's 8,000 miles away from us here. Does it really make any difference? Should we care? Next slide. Dave Brown cares. Missionary with our organization that says, you know what? We may not be able to take care of 2,500 a week, but we can do something. And so let's try. And Dave Brown cares. And because of he cares, he's there. Dave was an attorney here in the United States and gave up that. He said he gave up practicing law and went into grace, and uh, he's ministering in South Africa now, and uh, started this project called Tandanani, which in the native language there simply is, means love one another. And this project is aimed, like many other groups are trying to do, to do something to alleviate some of the problems there that are created because of AIDS in that part of the world. While it is a crisis, it is a tremendous opportunity, because here now kids that normally would have been raised in the paganism of that world are now if we can do something about it through the local churches down there, we can bring them to Christ and help them to grow up to be godly, godly people instead of living in the paganism. And so while it's a disaster and it's a, it's a horrible thing to be going through, it is an incredible opportunity, but, but that's, a, that's a long ways from here. You don't know any of those kids. Should you care? I want to take you probably, I don't know, six, 8,000 miles north of where that picture was taken to another country, the country of Denmark. Denmark is uh, one of the affluent countries of the world. In fact, it is so totally opposite from much of the poverty and the AIDS that you see in Africa because in this country of Denmark, it's modern. Next slide. Uh, and as you go into sh modern shopping malls that would equal anything that we have here, next slide, you would see McDonald's there in the next slide, uh, the, the restaurants that you're familiar with here because it is an affluent country. It's a very expensive country. Can of Coke, 
If you have a Coke habit, I mean the kind you drink, uh, you probably don't want to go to Denmark unless you can really raise a lot of support because it's just an expensive commodity there. Next slide. Denmark is the place that we actually, or actually Disney got his inspiration for Disney World in Disneyland. And Tivoli Gardens was, is located right in the middle of that city, a very innovative, creative, wealthy, affluent country, highly educated, some of the most highly educated people in the world. The next slide, beautiful country, beautiful cities. Next slide. And it's just a gorgeous place that is, is, is just a... I saw a report the other day on television that said the people in Denmark are the happiest people in the world. Now, I'm not sure how you measure that. But basically, because of their socialism, they are cared from the cradle to the grave. They have very few cares or worries. Uh, they are basically cared for throughout life. Well, what do the people in Denmark have in common with those orphans down in South Africa? Certainly isn't money. There's opposite extremes, but you said it. They both need the Lord. It doesn't really matter how much money you have in your bank account. You still need Christ. And so whether we're, meeting, whether we're reaching those that are deprived of, of even the basic necessities of life or whether you're trying to reach people that have all that they could ever wish for or imagine, there is still a common denominator between all of those people all across the world, and that is they need Christ. But who cares? Well, the next slide... Matthew and Sarah Bate care. They're going there. To our knowledge, they're the only North American missionaries in Denmark. They're not there yet. They're raising their support. They should be there sometime this year. And here's a country of 5 million people, mostly secular, very postmodern. Basically, the idea of God doesn't even cross their mind. I mean, as we were there, just sort of taking a look around and as we talk to people, it's just like, God, we just never even think about that. And there are some Christians there, mostly among the expatriates that have moved in, but the Danish people have pretty much abandoned God and have just turned their back on the whole idea. But the Bates care, and they're going to go there. They're going to see if they can do something about that. And missions has basically happened because there are people like you that have just been sitting there minding their own business and some guy comes along or the Spirit of God taps you on the shoulder and, and builds a care into your heart for a place in the world. But we could go on all night talking about South Africa's and Denmark's because there are just needs that exist all over the world like that. And you can pretty much throw a dart at a globe and no matter where it hits, I'll guarantee you there needs to be some work that needs to be done there. But it's so easy for us, sitting in the comfort of our homes here in North America, to not really care that much. Maybe care a little bit, enough to come out on a Saturday night, maybe to give a little bit in the offering plate. But how deep do you, not as a church, but do you as an individual really care? Who cares? Let's talk about that theme tonight. And to frame this, as I thought about your theme, I thought... You know, there's probably no better story to frame our thinking on this in the New Testament than the story that Jesus gave, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I want us to think, uh, to sort of uh, frame our thoughts this, this evening around this story of the Good Samaritan, one that you know really well. So it's not going to take a lot for me to explain the story to you, but I think it, it helps us to sort of figure out some things about ourselves and what our attitude ought to be towards 
the Quamschlangas and the Denmarks of the world and the many other places that you are familiar with. The story goes like this. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to a test. Now, a lawyer here was not an attorney like we think of today, but he would have been the same as a scribe. You probably read about the scribes and the Pharisees. He would have been the same as a scribe. He stood up and he put him, that is Jesus, to the test, and he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, keep in mind, he's testing or he's pushing Jesus here. He's trying to put him on the hot seat. He says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus turns the tables on him and says, you know the answer to that. Go ahead and answer. And so this lawyer, this scribe says, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus just answers him then and says, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Cornered. Because this lawyer knew he really couldn't claim to love God with all his heart with all his mind and so he wasn't going to approach that one but he said well maybe i can sort of skirt out now because it's getting a little bit embarrassing here jesus has cornered me why don't i talk about this neighbor thing i I know i can't do the god thing but let me see if i can do the neighbor thing and so he says uh desiring to justify himself he said to jesus who is my neighbor Now, I say all of this as sort of an introduction to the whole story. The reason Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan was because there was a question asked. Now, keep this in mind. Next slide. Who is my neighbor is the basic question that is being asked, and thus the story of the Good Samaritan. Let me run through it very quickly. It's found in Luke chapter 10. Here's how it goes. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when it says down, it means literally down, about 3,000 feet lower elevation from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, here's the first player in this scene. A priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Priest, we don't have them as such, but maybe their equivalent would be Van Marceau, the pastor of the church, the spiritual leader. A priest came, and surely if there was somebody that would have compassion on a guy in a ditch, it would be a priest. Well, he passed by on the other side. Second player. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. The Levite was like the assistant pastor. Uh, we can sort of understand a little bit why the priest didn't want to get his hands dirty, but you see, the Levites were the guys that were doing the dirty work around the temple. They were the guys, that some of them were temple guards, some of them were cleaning up after the sacrifices. So these were the guys that were used to getting messy. And so maybe the priest was thinking, well, the Levite's behind me, he's used to doing the dirty work, let him take care of this guy in a ditch. But both the professionals walk right on by. You know the story well. It goes on then to a third player, the Samaritan, and as he journeyed, he came to where he was, in other words, the guy in the ditch, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan was probably the most unlikely person to be doing this because he was a foreigner. In fact, a Samaritan was a despised person. What happened was, as, as the Israelites had been taken out of Israel during one of their captivity, times of captivity, they, the, the, the country of Israel had been manned by foreigners. And when the Israelites came back from captivity, here were all these foreigners that had taken over their homes and their, their, their farms and their businesses. 
And there was obviously animosity. It would be sort of like if, if, if all of a sudden Canada came in and took all of us out and we were away from here for, for about 40 years and then we come back and, and there's all these foreigners living in your home and running your business and driving your cars. Think what kind of relationship you would have towards those people that have just taken over <laughs> your property. And so there was this tension, this animosity among these Samaritans. But it was the Samaritan, when he came, he had compassion. There's basically three responses that we can have this weekend and this week and next week. As, as you listen to missionaries talk and as we talk about missions, you can respond, respond in one of three ways. You can respond, you can become calloused. You know, and it's very easy in a church like this that has so much missions, it's probably no longer a novelty to you. This is nothing new. You've heard, you've seen us all. You've seen missionaries come and go. You, you guys have lived and eat, breathe, sleep missions all the time. So, so missions is, it's almost just passe. It's just almost, you know, it's ordinary. And it'd be very easy for us in a church that really emphasizes missions to become somewhat callous like this priest and this Levite were. I assume that's what their problem was because as they saw the guy in the ditch, they just sort of turned their heads and walked on by. And so one of the tendencies that we have and one of the tensions that we have to live with is we've got to be careful that in the middle of all of the emphasis on missions and as we show pictures in South Africa and Denmark and the next missionary comes along and shows his pictures, we can almost get to the place of ho-hum. And we talk about 7 billion people and that just doesn't even register with us and it'd be very easy for us after this weekend to slip into this next week calloused and sort of just somewhat jaded about the needs of the world around us and so one of our heart's desires here I'm sure one of the purposes of this weekend is to, to keep our hearts tender and to make sure that we don't become calloused we don't want to be like those first two guys I've noticed as well there's another response that people have towards missions, and some people are curious. Some are callous. They've just too much of this stuff. Others are curious. And, um, you know, they'll ask us a couple of questions, but then that curiosity wanes pretty quickly. Or you might even take a trip to the mission field, and so you go on a short-term trip to a mission field someplace, spend a week living among the natives, and you come back and you say, boy, I'm glad I don't have to live there in that heat and eat that food, and aren't we so lucky to be Americans? And we have enough curiosity to go on a missions trip, but then we sort of very quickly retreat back to the comfort of our own homes and our lifestyle back here in the United States. That could be another response. And you might be here tonight just sort of curious to see what missionaries are going to talk about, and it was fun playing Jeopardy, but uh, it'll sort of end there. And as soon as we get out of here, that curiosity is just going to go into the back room, and life is going to go on. Or... You could be like the Good Samaritan. You could have compassion. This is a pretty tough thing for us to do today. We have gotten so inundated with information that it is really, really difficult for us today. You know, years ago, your neighbor was basically whoever lived next door to you, and you could sort of get your arms around that. But guys like me come along, and we talk about 7 billion people. We talk to you about people from all over the world and the needs that are there, and you just get overwhelmed. And missionaries are bombarding you with their prayer letters and emails and blogs and, and websites. And there's just an overload of information. And in this setting, it's really easy for us 
to become very jaded and calloused and lose our compassion. When we were in South Africa taking those pictures in, among the AIDS orphans, uh, we, we went into this little place where there was probably, oh, six, eight rooms in which there was beds there where AIDS patients were coming to spend the last few days of their life to die. And as we were sort of going from room to room meeting some of the people that were there, there was a lady that came very well dressed out of one of the offices, and I met a lady by the name of Babette. Babette was an Afrikaans-speaking lady who owned a, owns a bed and breakfast back up in the city where she lives, and every morning she feeds her guests their breakfast and then comes down and spends her day working among those AIDS patients. The most least likely person to be involved in helping AIDS patients would have been this Afrikaans-speaking lady who supposedly in the past under apartheid had no time for the blacks, but yet she was there. And that is really the characteristic of what has carried missions down through the years. It has been the least likely people that have been involved in missions. It's the Babettes of the world. It's, it's people that... that you know, we would least suspect could ever amount to anything in missions or that would be the ones that provide for missionaries. You know, we, in our organization, we receive $10 million a year. People are sending in money to support missionaries all over, the, all over the world. But you know, the average check that comes in is about $50. It's not the big wealthy people that are supporting missions. It's, it's the least likely people. It's the people that just simply say, I've got a compassion for and they name, they fill in the slot, the people of such and such country, and they support a missionary. And sometimes we tend to think that the big stuff needs to be done by people that are really capable or really high-powered or maybe very wealthy, but it's not. It is done by, by the least likely people. Well, the question is, who is my neighbor? Isn't that what Jesus is answering? That's what this guy had asked. And so Jesus tells this story, and so as we think in terms of defining who our neighbor is, it takes a little bit of a mind twist here, because normally we would think of our neighbor as being somebody that lives next to us. And I can tell you about my neighbors. I happen to live in Atlanta, Georgia right now, and I can tell you about the guy that lives across the street and left and right of me, and, and I know their names and I know their families. But that's not how Jesus defines neighbor. Look how Jesus defines neighbor. It's, it could be geographically anywhere. Jesus gave this story, remember, talking to guys out in the middle of nowhere. This was not in some suburb. But a neighbor could be somebody that's located anywhere so that those people in Denmark or those children in South Africa or you fill in the blank could be your neighbor according to the definition that Jesus gives to it. Secondly, is simply somebody in need. Obviously, in this situation, there was a guy in a ditch. There was a physical need that is there. We all know people that have spiritual needs. Your neighbor could be somebody you don't know. The Samaritan, to the best of our knowledge, at least the story doesn't say anything about him knowing the guy that's living, lying in the ditch. He just shows up and he sees the guy lying there. And then number four, probably somebody that can't repay you. I mean, there was no way, other than maybe eking out a small thank you, that... He could have done something to show gratitude to this good Samaritan, to the Samaritan that had helped him. Now, that's a considerably different definition of neighbor than the way we tend to think of it, is, don't we? 
And remember the question that the lawyer is asking, who is my neighbor? And this is the answer Jesus gives. I don't know about you, but it sort of sounds like missions. You know, those of us who are missionaries, we can find missions in any passage in Scripture. You just, you know, cut us loose and we'll... I mean, I don't even have to stretch that one, do I? Isn't that missions? Your neighbor is not just the person that lives down the street from you. Your neighbor is anybody on this planet that has a need, and we know plenty of those. Somebody that you don't necessarily know and somebody that can't necessarily repay you. That is the foundation of what missions is all about. And so if there was ever a, a definition of neighbor that ought to sort of hit us right between the eyes, it's the one Jesus gives. And tonight he just lays us out here and says, you know what? You need to care. The first two, we in our righteousness would look down on this priest and the Levite and look down our nose and say, something's wrong with you guys. But Jesus turns the table not just on the lawyer, but he turns it on me and he turns it on you and he says, you've got to think bigger than what you normally think. Now, you know the rest of the story. Let's move to the next slide. Notice what he did. First of all, what he did was sacrificial. It says, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whenever, whatever you spend, I will repay to you when I come back. He finishes this discussion by saying, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor among the, for the man that fell among the, fell among the robbers? Notice the first thing about this story was he did something sacrificial. Denarii. If, if we were living back in those days and the equivalent would have been earning $50,000 a year, a denarii would have been about four hundred. dollars So he, in essence, pulled out $800 and left it with the innkeeper. So what he was doing here was not just a couple of bucks. There was a sense of sacrifice on the part of this good Samaritan as he laid out the money to take care of this guy. He was willing to sacrifice his own time. I'm sure he was just as busy and had probably as many appointments in front of him as the Levite and the, and the priest did. He took his own clothing and his own oil and, his own, uh, and made bandages and he paid the hotel bill. He walked while this guy rode. He sacrificed to help this guy out. Notice what, what else. What he did was immediate. He didn't say, you know, I, I've got a business meeting down here and I'll be back in two days. If you're still laying in the dish, when I come back, I'll help you. He said, right now, I'm going to stop everything I'm doing, and I'm going to take care of you. Number three, it was measurable. We're obviously building an acrostic here on simple because I'm driving to a point. We're going to wrap this up here in just a minute. But I want you to remember these, this acrostic simple. It was measurable. It wasn't just ethereal, well, boy, I really feel sorry for you. <laughs> I hope things go okay for you. He did something very practical that was measurable. Those denarii were real. Those bandages were real. That, that, that oil that he poured on him was real. It was measurable what he did. Notice, it was personal. Apparently, the priest and the Levite had delegated, <laughs> hoping someone else would take care of this problem. The Samaritan said, no, I'm going to get in the ditch. I'm going to get down there and help this guy. I'm going to put him on my own beast. He got down there in that ditch and probably came away, if you can think of this guy, all beat up and bloodied. By the time he had carried him up and put him on his beast, guess what his clothes would have looked like? 
And at the same time that he was down in those ditch, he did not know but what maybe those robbers were still up there in the hills. And he put his own life at jeopardy. Why? Because what he did was personal. Notice what he did was also loving. <coughs> Excuse me. Love is simply committing yourself to help someone else and put someone else first. And while apparently the priest and the Levite wanted to put themselves first, and maybe they thought they had good reasons for not helping this guy, the Samaritan, what he did was loving, and letter E, what he did was effective. It solved the problem. I got to think of this way after hearing Bob Alderman, who I believe has been here before, and you guys have heard him preach but in their churches, they try to get people to do stuff in their missions conference. They don't use this acrostic, but they use some other words that are similar to that. I thought, you know what? We need to do exactly the same thing. And what I want to leave with you tonight is a challenge for you to, by, the, by, the, by next Sunday evening, for you to come up with a simple plan as to what you're going to do to get involved in missions. And I realize that by being part of this church, maybe coming out for a dinner on a Saturday night, you say, well, I'm involved. But but what of these things, <clears throat> as you think in terms of how you can get involved, if you want to answer this question, who cares, by saying, I care, you need to think in terms of what you're going to do in fulfilling each one of those criteria. What you need to do is something that is sacrificial. These are not days in which we need to be doing the norm. These are the days in which we need to do the abnormal. Do you remember that little video that we played right at the very beginning, the, uh, the population growth? You know, since Adam and Eve all the way through, it's basically been flatline. And then in the last 200 years, the graph just shoots almost vertical. We are living today in one of the most incredible times in all of world history. There are some that think there could possibly be more people alive on planet Earth today than there has been in all of world history put together. We have an opportunity right now or a responsibility towards 7 billion people. This has never happened before on planet Earth. And at the very same time that the world's population is going like this, guess what we as North Americans are doing in the world of missions? It's shrinking. And back in the last century, especially probably the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we were really going great guns from North America. And we were, we were the powerhouse of missions in the world. And if anybody thought about missions, oh, the Americans, they've got that one down. We, we did incredible things back in those days, in the 50s and 60s, after the war, into the 70s. But you know, when we got into the 80s and 90s, we started going down the other side of the mountain. And today there's 20% fewer missionaries from North America than there was just, oh, 15, 20 years ago. So this is not a growth phase in missions from North America. For whatever reason, we are shrinking. And a church like yours probably doesn't see this or sense this because you guys keep right on going. But if you clump all the churches together from North America and what we're doing in missions, this is a time in which we're shrinking in missions, not expanding. And I wonder whether Jesus, if he were here, would ask the church in general in North America, and who cares? Who cares that there's 7 billion people out there? 
Who would be willing to care enough to do something sacrificial? Who would, who would be willing to do something immediate? And the tendency is to say, you know, someday when I have more money, someday when I have more time, someday when I have more and you fill in the blank what you think you've got to have before you can get involved in missions, then I'll get involved in missions. But can I encourage you that by next Sunday night, you think of what you can do immediately, not someday in the future, but immediately to get engaged in missions to demonstrate that you care. Do something that's measurable. Don't just say, I'm going to pray for the missionaries. Tell us how many times a week you're going to pray for the missionaries, who you're going to pray for. Make it measurable. If you're going to give, don't just say, well, I'm going to give more to missions. Put a dollar sign behind a number or in front of a number and say, that's what I'm going to give. But whatever it is, make sure that it is both sacrificial and measurable. Make sure that it's personal, that that you don't just live your life vicariously through this church and say, well, our church is involved in missions. No, what are you going to personally do to get involved in missions? What is it going to show, what are you going to do that's going to show that you're personally putting yourself on the line and what you're doing is loving and that it is effective? And that's one of the reasons why, if you're not really sure what you could do or should do or whether it's going to be really effective, you can check with your pastor and he can help you decide that. But you need to make sure that what you do is going to be effective. In other words, it's going to solve one of the problems that exists around the world. This Afrikaans lady that I was telling you about in that little unit that was trying to take care of some aid patients that were dying. Babette, as I began to talk to her, I said, well, what, what do your friends think about what you're doing? Here you come down here and you, in essence, see these people in a ditch in racist South Africa. I said, what do your friends think about you coming down here and spending your days working among these folk? And she says, my friends say, Just let them die. Because of their immorality, they got into this problem. We didn't really like them in the first place. Just let them die. I doubt there's anybody here in this room tonight that would say, I don't care. The people are dying. And no one would be brazen enough to say about the people in Denmark South Africa, or you name the country, just let them die. But I wonder through our actions, or lack of action, we're saying by our actions what Babette's friends were willing to verbalize. We don't really care all that much about the world's population, just let them die. And as we understand this theologically, it's not just a physical death. That would be bad enough in and of itself, but we're talking about spiritual death here and it's Christless eternity unless somebody cares. So this is a great theme that we have for our conference this weekend and next. Who cares? And I hope that phrase, who cares, will reverberate in your mind and you won't be able to get away from it. And that this question will just bug you to death this week until you come up with your simple plan as to what you're going to do to do so and you can't solve all of the world's population's problems and we don't know what to do with 7 billion and I don't know how to meet the needs of 2,500 new AIDS orphans that will come into existence 
this week ahead of us. And I may not be able to do all of that, but that should not let me off the hook from doing something for those 7 billion or for those 2,500 or for those Danes or for whoever God lays on your heart. Do something. Come up with a simple plan to do something for your neighbor. Father, forgive us for our callousness. We hear so much, know too much. It's so easy for us just to walk away and not care. Forgive us, Lord, for that cavalier attitude. And I pray, Lord, that you would tenderize our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know what we could do with a simple plan of getting engaged somehow, somewhere, with a neighbor somewhere in this planet. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.